accidentally press the volume while you're picking that up. Good morning. Now wait. Good. Stay that way. So we've been going through, trying to really start from the beginning on what it is exactly that we believe. And we've been using that song, Because He Lives, as a rough road map. We haven't made it very far along it. First word is God. We spent the last three messages just trying to see about what the Scripture says about God. The next clause is God sent His Son. And so as we've been looking at God, we started in Acts chapter 17. We saw that God is the Creator. We saw that He is the Sustainer. We saw that He is the Master, the Ruler. That He is independent. He is self-sufficient. We saw that He is active in the affairs of men. And then we went to 1 Timothy 1.17. We saw again that He's the King, the Ruler. That He's eternal, that He has no beginning and no end. He's immortal, means He will not die or change. Right? He is the only wise. He's the all-knowing God. And then later we went to Deuteronomy 32 and 4 and saw that He is our rock. Right? He is perfect in all His works and all His ways are judgment or just. He is a God of truth. There's no lie. He cannot lie. He is without iniquity. He is not the author or creator of sin. There's no iniquity in Him, no perverseness, none whatsoever. Just and right is He. And then last time we looked at Psalm 100, verse 5, that the Lord is good. And we tried to figure out a little bit more about what that means, good. And we looked at some of His characteristics that He described in Himself being God full of compassion or pity, slow to anger or long-suffering, gracious and unmerited favor, superior bending down to bestow to the inferior and being full of mercy for blessings and kindness. Okay? So these are three weeks worth of fairly deep diving. Y'all had your sword drills of doing some scripture flipping during service and some homework too. Hopefully you're doing that. It's for your benefit. And so you may be so zoomed in that it's hard to kind of see the big picture. And as I... Look at the next clause of God sent His Son. It jumps me to questions. Okay, where do I start with that? Who's His Son? Why is He sending them? When did He decide to send them? All these different things. And I wasn't exactly sure where to start with that. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to zoom way out. And we're going to do an overview of the whole Bible. Hope you all have breakfast. Um, Obviously, I cannot cover everything. Hopefully I won't get off on too many individual tangents. I'm going to try and keep at a high level. Understand that these things, each that I'm talking about, they'll be fleshed out in the future. Um, But I want to try to run through it chronologically so we can get our, our roadmap in our head of what exactly God has done. Now, this may not be the first time you've ever heard this. Okay? So what I want you to be praying is that the Lord will knock the wax off your heart out of your ears, your head, your heart, your brain, everything, and you try to listen to this with fresh ears, with a fresh heart, with a fresh mind. Okay? This is going to be the most beautiful love story ever. And yet in our gross, defiled, sin-cursed state, 
we can often sit there with our arms crossed and we get more teared up at up when the wife dies. Right? We have an emotional reaction to a silly made-up story and we can sit here cold and hard to the truth. Right? So I don't know where you are this morning, but be praying that the Lord will open your ears and your heart to what He has done. So where are we going to start? Well, we're going to start before the beginning. Right? And that's kind of hard for our heads to wrap around. But before Genesis 1-1, there was a time when there was no creation, but God still was, right? God's eternal. He had no beginning and end. He's all-knowing. He knows everything that's going to happen. And so, before the, be- before the beginning, you can call that eternity past, if you will, God is there. And God decides He's going to make creation. And He's going to allow sin to exist in it. He doesn't create it, but He's going to allow it to occur. And so He knows all things of how it's going to shake out. He knows that men will fall. He'll create them perfect and upright, but He knows that men will fall. Fall into sin. And that sin would separate them from God. Okay? And so He knows way back then what's going to happen. And so he has a plan that he is going to put into action between God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Ghost for how they are going to redeem some of God's men. I use the men term humanity collectively, not just men for women. So at that time, he chose a people. Before the foundation of the world, he chose a people. He's going to make all people... He's going to choose some. Why is He going to choose some? He's going to demonstrate the vastness of His mercy and grace on those. And on the remainder, He's going to allow them to remain in that dead state of sin. And He's going to demonstrate the vastness of His divine, righteous wrath and judgment. Both are good. Both are pure. Both are holy. He didn't have to choose anybody. So what are you basing this off of? I, you know, I didn't read that in Genesis 1.1. No, you didn't. That wasn't revealed plainly until the New Testament. If you're in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it starts, Blessed be the God and Father, it's talking about God the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4. According as He, it's God the Father, hath chosen, He selected, He elected, us in Him. According as He hath chosen us in Him, and it tells you when. Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. That's what we are going to be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself. So He determined back then that we were going to be part of His family and the method we were going to get there was by Jesus Christ. That was how He was going to adopt us. You can Okay, but the point there I just wanted from is before the foundation of the world, that's when He chose. He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. The same concept is repeated in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning 
chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and the belief of the truth. Okay? So God chose. Where are we at in our timeline? Creation. Way before that. How far? I don't know. Before time. God decided he was going to have creation and he chose a people. Okay? He did it for his glory. All things are for his glory. He's creating creation for his glory. He gets glory in showing mercy. He gets glory in showing divine justice and wrath. Okay? So the Father chose the people and then He gave them to the Son. Okay, We see that in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. My sheep hear My voice. This is Jesus speaking. My sheep hear My voice and I know them and they follow Me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall any man pluck them out of My hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So the people were chosen by God the Father. They were given to the Son. And they're held in His keeping. And He is going to redeem them from their sins, from the fall. Okay, They're given to the Son. And while we're talking about I and my Father are one, you get into the concept of God. He is a very complex God. We believe in the triune God. The three persons in one. Three and one. Can I explain it to you perfectly? No, I cannot. But that's what the Scripture describes Himself as, and so I'm going to trust it and leave it at that. First John, First John, chapter five, verse seven says, "For there are three that bear record in heaven: the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one." Jesus would also be described as the second person, as the Word, as the uh, Lamb. Okay. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. So when you get to creation and God is in the beginning creating the heavens and the earth and you're going to see the Spirit of God moving across the face of the waters, if you tie that in with chapter 1 of John, so in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. So you've got all three persons of the Trinity evidence there at the beginning of creation. Actively involved in creation. Alright? Again, I know this is high level and we're moving quick, but we've got several thousand years to eternities to travel through. Okay? So we've got the Trinity. God the Father gives the people to the Son right before creation. All right, And they have an understanding about what the Son is going to have to do. When? In their good time. Okay? We'll talk about that in one minute. Alright, so let's go to fast forward. I don't know how far, but to creation. Alright, so we've gone from pre-creation to now creation. We're into Genesis. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right. If you cannot believe Genesis 1-1, you're really going to struggle with the rest of the Bible. If you can believe Genesis 1-1, congratulations, the Lord is allowing you to believe that. If you are talking to someone who wants to explain the Bible to you, but they cannot believe Genesis 1-1, you really don't have to spend much time listening to them because they're going to be way off base and everything else. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's one of those things we talked about many times as God has described Himself as that He is the Creator. Created everything that you see and the things that you don't see. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, So He created and He speaks and it was. Light and it was. 
The waters part and there's dry land. He's speaking, he's speaking, he's speaking, he's speaking until he gets to man. Man's a little bit different. Okay? First he says he's going to make him in our image. This is chapter 1, verse uh, 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Okay? Image and likeness. The word image could also be translated as a shade, shadow, phantom, illusion. So you're made similar to God, but you are not God. You're kind of... The likeness means a resemblance, model, shape. Now, is that referring to our physical features? I don't know. Is it referring to the fact that we have rational thought? I don't know. It's just saying that God is saying we're going to make something after our likeness. Now, can we in our little mortal selves, capture anything close to the infiniteness of God? No. So whatever we are, or we're a pale, little, sorry little carbon copy of whatever He wants to demonstrate or reveal about Himself. But we're made in His image. We're different than everything else that He's created. Okay? Made it in His image. He saw everything that He made. It was very good. Very good. 31 was very good. Behold... Uh, he's every, he saw everything he had made, behave, behold, it was very good, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day, rest on the seventh. Alright? But how was man myth different from the rest? He spoke, and the rest formed. Here, in chapter 2, verse 7, you zoom in to see how Adam was made. And the Lord formed man, formed man of the dust of the ground. You know that word formed? It means to mold. We're going to see illustrations throughout Scripture about God being referred to as the potter. And us as the clay, here he was literally molding the dust to the shape that he wanted. And then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Okay? So mankind is different. And the scientists say, You're just an animal. No, brothers and sisters, we're different. Okay? Formed by God, breathed into his nostrils and the breath of life, and he became a living soul. Okay? Fast forward, Adam is made. He names all the animals. There's not one that will be a helpmate for him. He's put in the garden, um, and he's given instructions. Right? He's put in instru- given instructions. This is verse 16 of chapter 2. Of every tree of the garden thou may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat. For in the day that thou eatest... Thereof thou shalt surely die. And we know that he does. And it may bother you that he doesn't drop dead right then. The surely and die are the same Hebrew word with a little bit different grammar. So it's repeated. And that the literal translation of the Hebrew is dying, thou shalt die. So when they sinned, they immediately started to die. And that would be the end result, is that they would ultimately die. Before then, no one had died. Not an animal. All the animals back in Genesis chapter 1 were all vegetarian. Did you know that? All the people were vegetarian. There was no death until then. Okay? And it would be after that they fall that the Lord would kill the animals and, and cover them with skins. Okay? So you have one commandment. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day that you do, dying, thou shalt surely die. You'll begin to die, and eventually you would die. Okay? So... Jump forward to chapter 3, you've got what's described as the fall. So we're, we're big periods here. we got pre-creation, God's decision. He's going to make creation. He's going to choose a people. He's going to give them to the Son. You've got creation. He makes everything perfect. He gives one command to Adam. 
Don't eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you day you do, then dying you shall die. Right? And then you've got what we describe as the fall. Fall from grace, the state fall from the state of perfection. Serpent beguiles or tricks Eve, right? He starts off by saying, uh, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Notice she added in something there. Now we don't know if Adam told her that, because she wasn't created when the original command came. Right? It was Adam's job to pass it down. Either way, he said, You shall not die. You know the story. I'm going to get way too in the weeds for depth we've got to cover. She's tricked. She looks at it. She sees that it's good for food and pleasing to the eye and desire to be made by. So what did she do? She didn't trust God. She trusted more of what she thought would be good for her. It looked good, pleasing to the eye. I think I'll go for it. And she gave it to Adam. In the New Testament, we say that Adam wasn't tricked at all. He knew what he was doing. And he still disobeyed God. They both ate, and their eyes became open. They saw they were naked, and that he was going to flee from uh, the voice of the Lord walking in the garden. Okay? So jump forward to 3.15, and what we're going to see here is the first glimpse of the promise of a deliverer. Okay? Genesis 3.15. And this is God giving... Uh, the decrees of what's going to happen because of this sin. Um, and so he's talking to the serpent first and said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And you may say, well, that's kind of a veiled reference. How do you know that's referring to Jesus and to the defeat of sin and Satan? Um, and I'll be honest with you, it takes going to Romans chapter 16 to make that really clear. Romans chapter 16 and verse 20 said, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. This is referring to the final wrap-up at their last judgment, that God is going to bruise Satan. So we know the serpent is Satan. He's going to bruise him under your feet. Now the the bruise there in in Romans, (laughs) I like the translation, is crush completely. Crush him completely. Okay, So you have the fall. This is fault. The first time they've sinned, they begin to die. Physically, they begin to die. And this new thing comes into the world. Death. Right? We see that in Romans chapter 5. Before this, before there was sin, there was no death. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man, this is referring to Adam, Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now, some people are going to make up, oh, Adam's not even a real person, he's just an allegory. You read the New Testament, you see how Christ refers to Adam as a man. You see two verses down how Paul here is referring to Adam as a man. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. He was real. This is not a made-up allegory uh, or imagination that was added sometime after the Babylonian captivity. This is all garbage that I've heard from professors right? that are designed to plant seeds of doubt with you. This, the Word of God is true and accurate. It's not something that people have messed with or monkeyed around with. Right? This is the one thing that you can trust. Okay, so sin entered into the world, 
and death by sin. Uh, why did death have to come in? Because in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Now, what I planned on talking about today was about God's wrath towards sin. And that's something that we really have to wrap our head around and understand in order to appreciate grace. Right? You have to understand wrath. How He's a God without iniquity. He cannot stand or abide sin. He cannot overlook sin. So when you see these uh, discussions about His nature uh, in uh, Deuteronomy, we're talking about Him forgiving and overlooking these sins and iniquities and trespasses. But in the very next clause, He's going to say, but He'll nobody's acquit the guilty. Acquit means to declare innocent. How can you have it both ways? Well, you have to have it both ways because he's not going to overlook the guilt. Somebody had to pay the price for that. Otherwise, he would not be righteous. Otherwise, he wouldn't be holy. Okay? So the wages of sin is death. Alright? So, we're going to do a big jump here. We've had for the foundation of the world, chose a people, gave them to the Son. We've got creation... Created everything perfect. And then man disobeyed the one command. Sin entered the world. Death passed upon all men for all sin. Adam and Eve are going to be thrust out of the garden. All this is pointing to the separation that now occurs between all of mankind and God. Right? That's, that's, that's really what death is. It's a separation. And so for the next 4,000 years, you say, how do I know it's 4,000 years? Because we don't believe in cunningly devised fables. God gave a human-to-human-to-human name record of everyone that lived in the interval. It's one thing to say, oh, so-and-so, a long time ago, such-and-such happened. I want you all to go back and try and figure out who your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-so-and-so was. You've got a lot of modern technology, and that's still a pain to do. Right? How about going back 50 generations? If you ask me to do that, I said, it can't be done. I have no idea. Right? But God planted flags throughout all of His Word over the course of the 2,000 some odd years that's going to be written so that you could see His truth. That this is different. This is a different book. Now, you have to read it to see those things. And you have to study it. You have to think about it. But it's there. So, over 4,000 years, God is going to use events and people to point to a grand finale. That's what he's going to be doing. Okay? Christ's coming, while wonderful, is not the grand finale. Okay? So, I don't know if y'all have ever been to a, a play, but at the beginning, curtain's closed. What's playing? You know what it's called? It's called an overture. Overture takes a little bit of the song from each of the songs, particularly musical, and it'll give you a little bit of each song, and you'll listen to it. It takes forever. It's like 20 minutes long sometimes. You're like, Why are we doing this? But then when you hear that song in context with all the words, you've already been introduced to it, and you're kind of excited to see how it all plays out. Right? Well, this is what God's doing. is He's giving little bits of clues. You don't have all the lyrics that go with it, but you can see how it's all building, building up to something. So that's what He's doing throughout the course of the Scripture. He's using these various events and people to point to a grand finale and to teach things. And there are themes that are used throughout Scripture. All right? One is unmerited blessings received by some. There is righteous judgment and wrath poured out upon sins. And the third is 
the promise of a Savior. If I had to give you three big themes for Scripture, and I'm thinking Old Testament here, is the unmerited blessings upon some, the righteous judgment on others for sin, and the promise of a Savior. So let's give you a few examples for the judgment. And I'm going to go to New Testament for the sake of brevity, because they do a better job summing it up than I could. Second Peter chapter 2, and in verse 4. It says, For God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So there are two groups of angels. There are ones who are described as the elect angels, and those that are not. The ones that were not sinned and fell, along with Satan. And they have been cast into hell, reserved in chains under darkness. All right? You've got this punishment of sin. All right? That one's kind of hard for us to relate to. Let's go to something that involves humans. And not and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. All right, so you've got both there. You've got the unmerited blessings upon some. Noah and his family receive a blessing of life of being spared. And then the divine wrath and punishment upon the whole world. Everything that breathed air and didn't swim in the sea is going to be wiped out and killed in one go. Okay? Then you also have the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? These are two cities uh, with just full of wickedness, and they had fire and brimstone rain down to destroy them. Again, in that story, you've got just Lot, who was living among this wickedness, which vexed his righteous soul, and God... Pulled him out. He spared some. Here he's described as the righteous, and he destroyed the cities and the cities about them, so that this lush and fertile plain. And Lot chose this area because it was so green and lush for for farming and for cattle. And by the time it was done, it was just a barren, salty land. Right? You couldn't even grow anything there. So verse uh, six said, "And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and both of those names mean like destroyed and dusty." I mean. It, <laughs> Um, into ashes, condemning with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that should after that sh- that after should live ungodly. So God can use His events and cities and people to be an example for things in, for people in the future. Right. So Sodom and Gomorrah were an example unto those that after should live ungodly, and He delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of that wicked. Alright, so you've got three different things. You've got angels, the flood, and Sodom and Gomorrah. There is examples of divine punishment for wickedness. Go to Jude. Second to last book of the Bible. Jude, verses 5 through 7. And I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed them that believed not. Okay? So God has put unmerited blessings upon the nation of Israel. He's pulled them out of Egypt, and then they refuse to believe his command to go in to capture Canaan, and so he wipes out everybody but two. Right? Joshua and Caleb. Even Moses didn't get to go in because he disobeyed. Right? So you've got this example of divine judgment for sin, and then again you've got the angels, and the angels which kept not their first estate, their first estate would be serving God perfectly, but left their own habitation... He hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner. So repeating that one. 
and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example. An example of what? Suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. This is part of the overture. This is God pointing to how He is going to rain down suffering and vengeance upon wickedness and sin. Okay? So, three big themes. Unmerited blessings on some, righteous judgment on others for sin, and the promise of Savior. So you've got these three or four, four examples of the judgment for sin. Let's look at um, the unmerited favor and the, the promise of a Savior. This will go through this course of the Old Testament of, of how you got the nation of Israel at all. It goes all the way back to Abraham. God chose one man. Was he a super awesome dude? No, he was an idolater. Right? But he called him out from where he was. He said, leave your land, leave your family, and you come to a land that I'm going to give you. Okay? Now, he was a little drug his feet there. He took his kin folks with him, went to another city that was a little closer, and eventually his father died. And then he went the rest of the way. He still didn't leave all his family. He took his uh, nephew Lot with him. But God had chosen him. All right? And then he gave him this promise. This is Gen- Genesis 22. Genesis 22, 18. So this is... O Abraham, or Abram, whose name he changed to Abraham. Genesis 22. And I think it's verse 18. Let's just... Let's start at 16, but we want to get to 18. And said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and is not withheld thy son, thine only son that in blessing I will bless thee, in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, thy seed shall possess the gates of his enemies. Verse 18, And thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. So he is telling him that of his seed, and this is singular, and that's the points made in the New Testament, that all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. This is your next little clue, your little flag marker pointing to the deliverer coming. He's saying it's going to come out of Abraham's descendant. Okay, And we can see that explicitly in Galatians chapter 3 and in verse 6. Galatians 3 and in verse 6. 16. 16. Now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Okay? So that seed that's being promised is Christ himself. Right? And so Abraham lived his whole life as a pilgrim. He was a stranger. He had been promised a land, but he didn't own any of it, except for a portion he bought for a burial plot. But he lived as a pilgrim, and even that is a pattern that you and I get to relate to is that we are looking for a country and this ain't it. Right? This country can go to absolute pot and this is not going to affect us in the long run. Okay? And you've got the same concept with the Israelites. They were uh, in bondage for a period of time and then they were delivered to go into a promised land. And that is pointing to what will happen to you and to me. All right, Let's see that uh, in Hebrews chapter 11 you see this, this imagery of uh, Abraham being used looking for a better country. 
Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8, And by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place called by God, which he should afterwards receive for an inheritance, he obeyed. And he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed, and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even as one, and therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. Right? These all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and pers were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had an opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Okay? And that city, that inheritance, will later be described as being prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Okay, And so you've got this whole arc now that's going to follow Abraham and his descendants and how uh, the promised one is going to be an heir of his promised child from Abraham. Abraham was an old dude. He was 100 years old. His wife was 90. She was no longer having, able to have kids. It's described him as he was as well as dead. So you've got two miracles that had to happen for Isaac to happen at all. And then that the heir was going to have, that the promise, the deliverer was going to come through their heir of Isaac. Right? And then later it's going to be promised to come through Jacob, Isaac's son. And then it's going to come, promised to become through the tribe of Judah. Right? These are all the promises and that's exactly how Christ would come. All right? So then you've got this period where uh, Egypt, they have to go down into Egypt. Right? Nation, Israel, uh, as Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So all his 12 sons and all their family members, they go down to survive in Egypt in this plague, or not plague, famine. And they're there for a period of time, at least you know, four generations, if you're looking at how, uh, where Moses comes into play. And they balloon into this massive nation and they start being put into bondage because the Egyptians are afraid that they'll team up with their enemies. And so they start using them harshly and then eventually God is going to deliver them out of them using Moses, right? Well, one of the things that we'll see when uh, Moses is declared, he gives a prophecy about how God is going to raise up another prophet like unto him. This is uh, Deuteronomy 18 and 15. Deuteronomy 18 and 15. The Lord, this is Moses speaking, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. So this is another little mile marker, little post pointing to the deliverer that will come. He's going to come and be a prophet like Moses. So Moses is going to lead the people out of Egypt. They're going to go out to Mount Sinai, and they're going to there be given the law. And the law is going to be described as being a schoolmaster to reveal how bad sin really is. Okay? There's no righteousness that you could obtain under law. You cannot be justified by the law, but it was to teach you how bad sin is and how far it falls short of God's standard. All right? 
They'd be told to go into the promised land of Canaan. They wouldn't do it. They were scared. The people there were tall. And so they disobeyed. And God said, okay, well, you're going to wander in the wilderness to every one of you except for the two you know, good spies, uh, Joshua and Caleb, until you're all dead. And so they did. And that was 38 additional years. There's two years they were at Sinai. So a total of 40 years they're camping in the woods until that whole generation had died off. And then Joshua is going to lead them in. That was Moses' replacement. Joshua leads them in to the city, to the nation of Canaan. They're going to conquer. And for one generation... They're going to follow God. But then they're going to fall in various ways of those that are still in there, the nations, the, Israel, the heathens within them, and they're going to follow their idolatrous ways. And then you're going to see this pattern of God raising up a judge, and by that judge, He's going to deliver them out of bondage. Okay. problem here is that this is just an overture. This is just a little point. Is those judges would eventually what? Die. Right? And when they died, what did Israel do? They went back into the patterns of sin again, and eventually God would send another uh, conqueror or someone to put them into bondage again. And so that was pointing again to there was a need for a righteous judge, an immutable judge, an undying judge, which is what Christ is going to be described as, that He is the perfect judge and that the Father is putting all judgment into His hands. Okay? Then you get into the period of the kings. You know, Samuel is the last judge. His judge, his sons were not good judges. They were unfaithful. And people said, we don't want them. We want a king. We want to be like the other nations. Let us, you know, all the other kids are doing it. We'd like a king, right? And so they get kings. Saul wasn't so great. He was disobeying. You had David. David was a good king. He was a good man after God's own heart. But even he wasn't perfect, right? And he caused great sin and suffering by his disobedience, particularly in the avenue with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. And then also by numbering the people for his own power and glory to say, look at what I've got at my control, right? It's the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar got into as he's boasting about his pride for what he has built, all right? So even though he was the best king that they had had, he still wasn't right. He still wasn't perfect. He wasn't the best king that they needed, right? And his son after him, Solomon, the wisest, richest, he had everything in his favor, and yet what did he do? He accumulated a lot of heathen wives and he started serving idols by the end of his reign. He was in gross idolatry. Alright? They needed, you and I need, a perfect king, a perfect judge. Okay? Alright. And then there's another promise that's going to be given uh, to David's house that, um, so within the tribe of Judah, um, that David's house would also have the deliverer come from him. It would be an heir to sit on his throne. Okay. And then there's going to be various other um, prophecies. Um, where is he going to be born? That would be Micah 5.2. It says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, thou art little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me. That is the ruler of Israel, whose going forth hath been from old and from everlasting. So Micah is written about 700 years before Christ is born. Okay. Prophet Micah is going to write that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Okay. Isaiah, who's also about 700 years, is going to say he's going to be born of a virgin. The Lord, therefore, this is Isaiah 7 and 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear forth the son and shall call his name Emmanuel. All right? Then Jeremiah, which is only about 600 years beforehand, he's going to describe the massacre of the infants. Right? Remember, old Herod didn't want Jesus to exist. Right? There'd been another king claimed his authority, didn't like that. Wise men didn't come back and talk to him like he told them to, so they found out, you know, the star's been around about two years so, or some period of time. I'm going to wipe out all the kids, not only in Bethlehem, but in all the towns around it who are two years old 
and younger. That was prophesied by Jeremiah. It was a prophecy given by Jeremiah in 31.15. It says, Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, that's a village right outside of Bethlehem, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for, for her children because they were not. And why is it talking about Rachel? Rachel was buried in Bethlehem. Okay, and so that massacre would happen. How about in Hosea 11 and 1? Um, there would be the prophecy about Jesus coming out of Egypt. Right? Born in Bethlehem, but somehow he's going to be coming out of Egypt. Hosea 11 and 1 says, When Israel was my child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Well, that was where they had to depart when the wise men um, left. And they knew that Herod was after him. An angel warned Joseph in a dream, took Mary and the child, and they fled to Egypt. And then when Herod was dead, they came back. Okay, so all the Old Testament, you've got these themes of God demonstrating His righteous wrath for sin. You've got these themes of Him showing ridiculous levels of blessings, unmerited. He didn't choose Israel because they were so great and so powerful, but because they were, they were weak. Right? And so He could demonstrate His glory in them. And you've got these signs pointing to how God is going to send the Son, whom He agreed back before the foundation of the world. And so all this is leading up to Christ coming to where He veils His glory as God and comes into the world. And then He fulfills every prophecy perfectly. Everyone that, I mean, down to you know, how is He going to come into Jerusalem when He has His triumphant entry? He's going to be riding a donkey, the colt of an ass, right? How much is He going to get sold for? That was a prophecy, 30 pieces of silver. What are they going to do with the money? They're going to buy a potter's field. All those things have been written beforehand and he fulfilled every one. You're going to be numbered with the transgressors. He even told the disciples, y'all go make sure you got a sword because we're going to fulfill this right here. Right? So God, Jesus, comes into the world. He is fully God and fully man. Right? You see his divinity and that he is able to command all things. He's able to command the nature, the wind, and the waves. He spoke, they stopped. He's able to command plants to die at his call. He's able to command the fishes. Um, hey, they're going to fish on that side of the boat. Y'all all go right there. There's so many in the net that they break. Right? He's able to command demons. Come out of him. Able to command men. Come able to command illnesses. He had power. All power. And able to demonstrate that. What was he doing while he was here? He was caring for the weak and for the afflicted and the sore. Those, that, those who were righteous in themselves didn't care for, that they were beneath them. He came to the vile and the ungodly, healing them and calling them to repentance. Three different times a voice came from heaven testifying that this was God's Son, speaking and saying, this is my Son. That is baptism, right after His entry into Jerusalem and on the Mount of Transfiguration. Three different times there was a voice heard, an audible voice heard, and yet he was rejected by the Jews. And there was prophecies about that, about he'd be rejected by his own people, how he would be a suffering savior, how he was going to be arrested, allow himself to be arrested. And we spend a lot of time recently looking at the suffering that he went through as he was arrested, as he was tortured, as he was mocked, as he was spit upon, as he was abused, his back was lashed, his beard plucked out, punched and hit in the face, 
This is God the Creator being abused by His own creation because He is going to stand in the place for every single one of His children. For all their sins. For every transgression against God. Because, you know, here in our culture, we get really upset when somebody sins against somebody else. Right? You were driving drunk and you killed somebody. I demand what? Justice! You see a lot of shirts with I demand justice for so-and-so. What does justice always translate to? Punishment. Right? Every single sin you did, you sinned against God, and righteously, He demands justice. And do you know what? Somebody volunteered to take your justice. To receive your justice. He was the one who had no sin. And that's what made him eligible to receive it. Those two thieves that were crucified beside him, they could have said, yeah, I'm dying for you. But their sin wouldn't have been, their offer wouldn't have been worth anything because they were corrupt, just like us. And their sins needed payment as well. And so he voluntarily stepped in for each one of his children, each one that the Father had given him. And before he did it, he told them he was going to do it, that they were going to take him and they were going to kill him. And then what? He was going to be dead for three days. His body would lie in the grave. And then he would return. He would be resurrected. In John uh, 14, talked about that no man had the power to take his life from him. That he had the power to lay it down and to take it again. John 10, 14-18 says, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep. Who are sheep? Those that the Father chose and gave Him. As my Father knoweth me, even so knoweth I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Other sheep have I, which are not of this fold. This is referring to the Gentiles, outside of the fold, just the Jews. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself and have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. So they were nailing his hands. He's bleeding and wounded. Nothing they could have done could have killed him until he chose to lay down his life. And then he took it again. After three days and three nights. That was the sign that he gave. The sign of the prophet... um, of Jonah, as he spent three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so was the Lord going to spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. All right. After that, there's a resurrection. All right. And this is not done in secret. This is not something that was just made up. They stole his body. You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you'll see there was a multitude of witnesses. 1 Corinthians verses 3 through 8. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Again, all those prophecies, all the things that had to be done, He did. And He died for our sins. And that He was buried. And that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, as it was told, so He did. And He was seen of Cephas, Peter, then of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once. 500 brethren at once, 
of whom the greater part remain unto this day. But some are fallen asleep. So even at the time he was writing this letter to the Corinthian church, the Apostle Paul could say, there were a huge group of eyewitnesses to the Christ, to Jesus' living after they had tortured him and killed him, that he came back from the dead. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. That would be when Paul gets to see him for the first time on the road to Damascus. And he'd actually see him multiple times later. A lot of eyewitnesses. This is the resurrection. All right? Go to 2 Peter. 2 Peter. I alluded to this earlier. I just want to read it. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15 through 17. Peter's about to die. He's old, or he's, he knows that his time is near. He says, Knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, that's referring to his physical body, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. And so Peter was told there uh, at the seashore that he was going to die and it wasn't going to be pleasant. Moreover, so he's, that's, that's where he's at. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. This is what I really want you to know. I'm not going to be here much longer, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice from Him from the, from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with Him in the holy mount. And so you've got eyewitnesses to the voice on the Mount of Transfiguration of God speaking of this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased and also eyewitnesses of His bodily resurrection. Okay? Go to Acts chapter 1 verse 16. Nope, verse 6. Let's start in verse 3. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion or death by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days. This was not a one-time hallucination as some liberal scholars will try to make you believe. He was seen over a period of forty days by over 500 people. And the 500 people is at one time. And speaking of them things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and being assembled together with them, commanded they should not depart from Jerusalem, but for wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard from me. I'm going to just jump down to verse uh, 6. It says, When they therefore were come together, he asked of them, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And I said, Okay. Is it, are we going to get to overthrow the Roman rule? Are we going to be you know, back in charge again? Are we going to have the kingdom? Because I still didn't really get it. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Verse 9, And when he had spoken these words, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by him in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into the heaven? 
This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So you've got the ascension. So the Christ who came into the world, who lived a perfect life, suffered and sinned, suffered for our sins, bled and died in the grave three days, resurrected, showed himself for a period of 40 days to many, many people, and then he ascended up into heaven. And now we are waiting for him to return. That's where we are. That's where we are in the story. We're waiting. We're, we're now caught up. This is us. We are now waiting for him to return. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, there you go, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. So there's a, a theme there of comparing Christ and Adam. Adam being the first man and Jesus being the last Adam. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit, there was not a first which was... Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and after that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. So as the earthy, such as they are also earthy, and as is heavenly, such as they are also that are heavenly. And as we are born the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Verse 51, But I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. There is going to be a change. And this is talking about that last day, last trump, there is going to be a change. What's going to happen? In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. That's really fast. At the last trump, for the trump shall sound, that's a promise, it shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. You will no longer decay. It says for this corruptible, that means decaying, this decayed, this body that we have, must put on incorruption, that which cannot decay. That's perfect. The mortal must put on immortality. That which is dying has to put on that which cannot die. So when this corruption shall put on incorruption and this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall it be brought to pass the saying which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for that last day, and there's going to be a massive change. All right, and You can see that in Matthew Chapter 25, that there's going to be a judgment. There's going to be a final judgment. Matthew 25, verse 31. And when the Son of Man is come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit on the throne of His glory, and before Him shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from his goats. We see this pattern of referring to His children that were chosen as sheep, and all those that were passed by as being goats. All right. He shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father. They were blessed because he chose them. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then we'll skip down for the sake of time to see the left hand. He said those on the left hand, the goats, Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, 
prepared for the devil and his angels. The angels are reserved uh, in darkness right now. They're going to be cast in this fire. It's prepared for them. All right? We'll jump down to verse 46. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. That's what's going to happen on the last day. Eternal, bliss, wonderful, most wonderful day you can imagine, and the worst day you could possibly imagine. Beyond anything we can really imagine. Go to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20 and 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You see elsewhere in Revelation, we'll take time today, that the names that were written in the book of life were written there before the foundation of the world. All right? And for all the works that you have that you will be judged on, each one will be paid already. In Christ's blood. There's nothing that you can be accused of any further. You're not guilty because He's already paid the debt. Go down to verse 1 of chapter 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So you're getting the last day. You've had that great judgment. There's going to have time right after that. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, or dwelling, of the Lord is with men, and he shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. He said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful, unbelieving, the abominable, abominable, the murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, and I will show thee, show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, that holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even as a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had walls great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, 
and names thereon, written thereon, are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. I'm going to jump forward a little bit. Y'all can read that at your own time. Verse 21, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was one pearl. So one pearl per gate. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither the moon to shine for it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, nor maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there a tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of His Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. And they shall see His face, and His name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there. They shall need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And He saith unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. The Lord God of the holy prophets sent His angels to show unto His servants the things which must shortly be done. Verse 7, Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Stop there for today. That's what we're trying to wrap our head around each time we come here. That's the love story that started before anything was other than God and will continue on for forever. Can I explain everything of it to you? No. A lot of it's not revealed. But you and I have access to what God has said. What He's done. A little bit about who He is. And has given us great and precious promises for what we get to look forward to. This should not be a side note in our life here. It shouldn't be an afterthought or an asterisk. This should be the main thing. Thank you all for your time and attention.